0: Hey, this is Annie and Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, production of iHeartRadio. And today is another episode of Female First with Means. We're once again joined by our good friend and colleague, Eves. Welcome, Eves. Hello, everyone. Yay. We're always so thrilled to have you. And as we're recording this, it is a Friday. It is a Friday. <laughs> yes. I like, I say, I say that with such, like, I know the day.
1: <laughs> right. You have well, to remind yourself.
2: Yeah. So yes, you have to remind me often of what day it is. I'm like, is it? Okay, great. I just, I just had a calendar saying.
0: Two things. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Every morning, I email Samantha like, today on your docket is. <laughs> <laughs> Man, can we arrange that? I need that. If you do, I used to do that with my ex-boyfriend, no joke. And looking <laughs> back, like, I'm so surprised you put up with so much of my nonsense for so long. Because I would send him like an email. Today, we're going to do this, this, and this. <laughs> and here are some other options.
1: And he I want to know what things. you think
0: about this.
1: <laughs> so, so he didn't ask for this? You just took it upon yourself to, to do it? <laughs> uh, he didn't ask for it per se, but I was
0: just such a bigger email communicator, which is odd looking back. I didn't text as much as I emailed. Um, so I think it was just sort of a natural. He realized we would... I'd respond quicker if he emailed me. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. I text. I, I, like to, I like to sit with text for a minute because oh. I, I feel like they're easier to misinterpret because they're usually shorter. But in email, you can be longer. That's why you uh, use emojis.
2: Ex- you gotta use emojis and emoticons to pretend like, hey, look, I'm not being really serious. So I'm even worse at that out in emails because I don't put those in emails. So I feel like I'm even more <laughs> blunt in emails than I am in texting.
0: Your emails are hilarious because they're like no caps and no periods. And I'm just (laughs) like, well, I'm going to put my own emotion (laughs) on this.
2: Exactly what I'm saying. Like, there's nothing I add to it. I'm just like, here's the sentence. End.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. I'm very professional. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. That's efficiency is what that is. I mean, honestly, it's I think because
2: I've worked in a government field that I had to get out emails so quickly. And I try to be as like official as possible, but it would just be a literal like 10, ten different back and forth conversation in one chain that I just was like, get this done, get this done. So that's kind of in my yeah. mind frame.
0: I get it. I get it. <laughs> um, I feel like I, if I had to choose my most random skill set, one of mine would be composing emails. I feel like I'm very good at it. Uh, it's an art
1: form. <laughs> <laughs> that's. Uh, are you proud of that skill? I just. I. I'm so. Sending emails is a pain for me sometimes. So, is that something that you you take with pride, Annie? I. I do <laughs> because. Uh, I do think you have to.
0: Consider how it could be misinterpreted and just yeah. be clear, so you're not gonna have more emails than you want. I, don't, I won't say I necessarily like it, okay, but I am. Okay. I do feel <laughs> some pride, some pride. <laughs> it's a skill. It's a skill for Thank sure. Thank you. Yes, sure. yes. Well, uh, we are talking about someone with a different set of skills today, not email <laughs> <laughs> or
1: texting. Um, who did you bring for us today, Eves? Well, today we are going to be talking about Afong Moy. So her history is very interesting. Um, she was another one of those people who I think we talked about for a previous episode who there isn't a ton about. Um, and that's very purposeful and intentional, like whose history gets recorded. But yeah, we're going to be talking about Afong Moy. So she wasn't the first Chinese person in the U.S., but she was likely the first documented Chinese woman in the U.S. She was the only Chinese woman to be exhibited as a... exhibited. That's in quotes as a curiosity yes. because saying that a person was exhibited sounds weird, but like technically that's what she was doing. She was an mm-hmm. exhibition and she was a performer. But as as a curiosity, um, before Chinese people began mass immigrating to the United States. Um, so she got a lot of national recognition in the U.S. and also it's notable to think that there were Chinese men in the U.S. at the time, but she was the only known Chinese woman who was in the U.S. So just to be in that position also is a whole thing. But yeah, like I said, there's not a lot known about her life. And I think in the past, something that's a little bit different about talking about Afon Moy today is that in the past, we've kind of really focused on women who were, were talking about their accomplishments. Like their first were the things that were, oh, they were the first Black woman architect in this place. And obviously those things are, very important but that the circumstances around this first is a little bit different than the previous first we've talked about so Mm. i just want to be clear that her arrival and kind of tenure in the u.s aren't necessarily like a celebratory thing completely she was kind of trotted out like a show horse you know Mm -hmm. like she and of course she as one person can't stand for all chinese people or all chinese women right And so this isn't kind of me saying, wow, like, look, Afong Moy made it out of China into the U.S. Like, (laughs) what a pioneer. Like, that's not Uh, at all what I'm trying to say. Because I'm definitely not here to uphold all of the isms and all of the problematic things that surround her time in the U.S. Like, so many. Like, there are so many layers to the story. There's Mm -hmm. the xenophobia. There's imperialism. There's racism. There's nativism. There is the exoticizing. Mm -hmm. And all that stuff was imparted on Moy during her lifetime. And so, so I just kind of wanted to preface with that. Like, this story, I'm also not here to paint her story as a tragedy because I feel like, as a person who has limited knowledge, like, I'm not a historian of Moy. And also, like, her story in general, there isn't that much documented about it. Like, her time when she was in China before she came to the U.S. So, I'm not, I don't want to paint her story as this tragedy. Like, the only thing that she embodied, the only thing that her life embodied was performance. That's what we know about her, but that's not all of her life. And so I think we have to keep in mind, just as we would keep in mind as we're watching a movie, like, we're starting in media res, kind of to be, like, a nerdy, like, uh, (laughs) metaphor. Like, there were things that happened before the conversation that we know and we're able to have about her and things that happened after that we don't know about her that we can't necessarily bring up today because we don't know it. Mm -hmm. And so her value wasn't only instilled. Her value wasn't only about the performative work that she did in the U.S., So I just want to preface with that. A lot of what we know about her comes from other people as well, like not from her own voice. It comes from letters. It comes from articles. It comes from diaries. It comes from scrapbooks. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. um, And the story is fascinating. And I know in in past episodes of Female First, um, we are, perhaps me, I don't want to speak for both of you, but I've had that moment of, oh, well, I don't understand all the historical, cultural context of what was happening in China at the time or in wherever. or I mean, even in the U.S. There's just mm-hmm. things that I might not even think to question mm-hmm. unless I really, really dig into and into things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that in her story is good to keep in mind as well. And it is so interesting looking back with our, our modern eyes where. Um, now you can hop on a plane and go to pretty much anywhere. This was a time when a lot of Americans had never seen someone from China. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that's so. I I just keep that in mind. I would say. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, I get the fun
2: experiences of just being an Asian woman when I lived in like the smaller towns, and even though they know of Asian cultures still there's enough ignorance out there not everyone obviously that they would be like what are you which is the first question i would get and that in itself is kind yeah. of like can you imagine what happened when they actually never knew an asian person in general <laughs> and then being like okay <laughs> seriously what like that seems <laughs> like that's, like, yeah, that's right. kind. Of, i cannot imagine being just already having to deal with some of the confusion and ignorance here today and then mm-hmm. going to think about the reality of oh my god what would have been like back then and that kind of yeah. that back and forth and yeah as you I know you're going to unfold all of this just reading about just some of the things that they assume about her uh life and again some of the silence and what might not have happened is kind of like wow I wonder how lonely at the same time mm-hmm. how much she tried to play into that to be accepted but yeah I know we're gonna get yeah. into that
1: yeah yeah, yeah. F- for sure I and I, I guess it's like weird. There is a, a weird line where you try to have a, or I'll speak for myself, where I try to have a level of empathy about like, well, this is a thing that is truly completely foreign to a person. But the the way in which that was... in imparted on her like you can say i've never seen a thing oh i've never seen a thing and then you can say i've never seen a thing how awful is that thing like how weird is that thing how strange is that thing and like they did that with her foot binding which we'll talk about and they did that Mm -hmm. with her you know herself and and had a lot of commentary on like you know what they thought was right and what they thought should be the case based on you know American white values and religion mm-hmm. and upbringing and morals and all of those things and tried to project what they thought was quote unquote right onto onto her culture and her customs and her. So okay. yeah, it's super complicated. I mean, yeah, like thinking about what you said, Samantha, just about how today, like it's already, <laughs> it's a huge thing to be the only Chinese woman that people have seen, like period up until sure. that time is definitely, I can't. Imagine, and I can't relate to be the only, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. because I think we're we're still put in positions like that today. Mm-hmm. Like I'm still in rooms where I'm the only Black woman right. in the room. But mm-hmm. this is that on a way larger scale, yeah, and it's obviously bigger it's scale. a different different culture. <laughs> so yeah, um, I guess we can get into her story now. <laughs> yeah, cool. Let's do it. Yeah, Annie, you mentioned not knowing what China at the time was like or I'm not specifically China at the time. Annie, you mentioned like not necessarily knowing the context around things that were happening in specific cultures and nations at the time. Um, And China at the time, I think it's worth talking a little bit about the background of the context in this case, just because it figures so much into the story and the way that people viewed her. And obviously, I can't go through the whole history of the place as large as China in a short amount of time. (laughs) So this is going to be simplification. And obviously, the history is more complicated than this. But this was during the Qing Dynasty, which lasted from the mid... And obviously, too, my pronunciations, I know, are not nuanced (laughs) when it comes to Chinese. But yeah, so it lasted from around the mid-1600s to the early 1900s. It was generally prosperous. Um, Population was growing majorly in a big way during some part of the Qing Dynasty. And there was restricted trade and relations with the West, Yeah, in the 1750s, Western trade was restricted to the southern port of Canton, Guangzhou today. But um, as the demand for tea increased and the Industrial Revolution came along, people in our Britain was looking for more markets for manufactured goods. And so they tried to kind of extend that out to China and establish Western-style relations with the Chinese. But by the early 1800s, as you can imagine— Um, When trade and commerce and like relations starts, conflict starts to be a part of the pot as well, um, when people start to stick their hands in things. So Western countries began to be more engaged in conflicts with China as they were scrambling to kind of get access to Chinese products and markets for European and U.S. trade. So, yeah, there was this insular kind of isolationist situation that was happening in China um, when it came to Chinese people leaving China and Western people coming to China. That was a part of it. Also, as I mentioned briefly earlier, Afong Moy, her feet were bound. That was a practice that grew a lot during the Qing Dynasty. And the Manchus attempted to ban that practice of foot binding, but they weren't able to do so. And the Han Chinese were, they were the ones who mainly practiced foot binding. Um, and they continued to do so and it did limit women's physical mobility. And so anyway, people from the U.S. did visit China. So it wasn't like there weren't any Western people or people from the U.S. specifically in China. There were. And there were people who were lived in the U.S. who had never been to China, who were interested in it and, and had other depictions of China and saw it as this mystical, faraway place. and. Yeah, so there were like landscape scenes on Chinese ceramics that made their way to the U.S. and kind of painted China as this picturesque place. And people were also really into the idea of Chinese women and foot binding when they found out about it. And there was this air of mystery around that as well. Um, And I mean, there's obviously so much problematic stuff when it comes to the way that people viewed and spoke about Chinese women and foot binding and all that stuff back then. But I kind of think of it as this way where they're like portraying Chinese women as these cryptids. It's like, ooh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. this elusive unicorn or like a Bigfoot that I've never like seen. Um, Maybe I'll get to see it one day. Like I have no idea how this creature works (laughs) type of situation. So that's kind of a little bit of background when it comes to China and views of China and how those were developing at the time. And as we'll get to a little bit later, those did change. Those views did evolve over time.
0: We have a lot more for you listeners, but first we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
1: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So. On to the story of Afong Moy and how she got to the U.S. So there's not much known about her personal family history before that time. This is kind of where her story starts, generally. There were the traders, Nathaniel and Frederick Karn, and they were in the business of importing foreign goods to the U.S., and they have their own backstory, but... Today is not about them, so we won't talk about them. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So that included goods from China. And those Chinese goods were things like handkerchiefs, like shawls, fireworks, baskets, fans, watercolor paintings, and a bunch of other items. So these guys decided to develop a marketing scheme. And what do you know? (laughs) (laughs) along with Captain O'Bear. So they did this with Captain O'Bear. And that would help with selling their goods. And they wanted to, their whole scheme was exhibiting a Chinese woman in New York. And they wanted to surround her with Chinese decor and furniture so that they could sell their goods. But they would kind of use the woman as the centerpiece to bring people in. And then once they were there, they would scour her whole appearance and her customs and everything that she did but in the meantime all the things that she was surrounded by be like ooh like my precious you know all of these yeah. shiny furniture and decor and items that they would love along the way and hopefully be tempted into buying them because mm-hmm. middle class white women were had a little bit more time and and resources to be able to to get such things and the morals and the values around being able to acquire those things was also something that was developing at the time I know y'all can talk about it, and probably like have you know done research on it as well. But the the storied history of white folks putting people of different ethnicities and customs and cultures on display is not something that's limited to Afong Moy. So I know y'all have probably heard of Starchie Bartman or the quote unquote Venus Hottentot who was put on display. Human zoos that were really popular in Britain and so called freak shows and Chang and Eng Bunker who were the who they call the Siamese twins, who were conjoined twins, who were put on display as curiosities. So Afong Moy was objectified and kind of dehumanized in a similar way. Um, but I don't want to take all of her agency away from her because she did have agency as well and made choices. That's worth being you know, recognized that, yes, she was trotted out, and yes, she was put on display, and yes, she was brought over from China, but there was agency in her story as well. So, like, Aubert apparently reached an agreement with Afong Moy's father, who was likely a Cantonese merchant or comprador, and her father got money out of the deal, but apparently Aubert also promised to bring Moy back to China in two years. Spoiler alert, that did not happen. (laughs) (laughs) She stayed in the U.S. for a lot longer than two years. Oh, Oh. wow. Yeah,
2: do we know, did she ever make it she didn't go
1: back, right? No. She, uh, we don't know if she ever went back or not. I think the most we can do is speculate on whether she went back to China or not. Like what happened after she left the U.S. Because right. I read somewhere that she may have gone to Europe
2: at one point in time.
1: Yeah, possibly. 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 Um, but there's not really any record of her after a certain point in the U.S. So she, did, she came to the U.S. in 1834 And Afong Moy was a name that was probably given to her. (laughs) She was Han Chinese, which is surmised because of her foot binding. Um, And her, her family background wasn't recorded when she arrived here. And this was before the times of the gold rush. Like I said earlier, this is before mass Chinese immigration to the U.S. And she was likely around 16, probably no older than 19. So she was young. Um, and when she came to the U.S., it was at that point where she became the first documented Chinese woman to enter the U.S. So she arrived on a ship called the Washington under Captain O'Bear, and she had come from Canton. Articles, and there are a bunch of articles on her like, that you can read, which are ugh, bad, hilarious, yeah. like yeah, yeah. You know. It's a lot going on in these articles, but (laughs) it said that she was, there was one that said she was four feet, 10 inches tall, and that her feet were just four inches long since she wore, quote unquote, iron shoes since she was 12 years old. And it said that she would soon start accepting visitors at number eight park place in New York. And at first, articles gave her different names um, before she was given the name Afong Moy, there was one, for instance, that gave her the name Miss Ching Chang Fu. Mm-hmm. I don't know where they got that name from, but that was the name that they gave her in one article. That article was in the New York Commercial Advertiser. And so there were other names that she was given as well that I don't know the, the source of. I don't know where those names came from. Obviously, a lot to be said about somebody naming somebody. <laughs> When they get to the U.S. and also not necessarily knowing anything about Chinese culture or having ever seen a Chinese woman before. Yep. Don't know where (laughs) they came from. Um, But she did have an attendant who would translate for her. So she didn't know how to speak English at the time. She had an attendant who would translate for her. And at the place where she would be exhibited, which they were setting up when she got over here. um, And there would also be various objects of Chinese curiosity around her. Um, the price of admission was 50 cents. There were some earlier sources that said 25 cents, but it looked like they bumped it up after a while. And children under 12 were half that, according to articles. There, of course, were a bunch of physical descriptions of her appearance in in articles and in letters. And so by way of somebody else's description of her, not her description of herself, I will tell y'all what they said she looked like. So there was a November article in the Vermont Courier that described her this way. She is short, but rather robust in stature. Her features are pleasing, her forehead high and protuberant, and her face round and full with two languishing black eyes placed with the peculiarly... (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) It's a hard word. That is really hard. (laughs) ...obliquity of her outer angle, which characterized the Mongolian. I guess that's how you pronounce that. Um, variety of the human race from which this people are descended. So the article later says that she was quote much pleased with our country and not at all homesick. Oh, I, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not quite sure how they reached that. I'm assuming. I'm assuming it's an assumption because the article doesn't say that she said it. It says it is said that. So mm-hmm. I don't know if those are words from her mouth or not, but. As you would imagine, all of the things that we were talking about earlier, like the nativism and the patriotism, all mm-hmm. those things that are probably happening have to do with that. But that's my assumption as well. Yeah, so over the next decade, there were a lot more articles written about Afong Moy. Um, And as you can see by that kind of description and what we've talked about earlier, a lot of them were very Orientalist, othering, and really grossly doting and patronizing um, and I'll pull out a quote from an article that Tao Zong wrote in 2014 that was called The Start of American Accommodation of the Chinese Afong Moy's Experience from 1834 to 1850. Um, just because I feel like it's a good way to, to put it. Um, and this is what is said. Her very presence as the first recorded Chinese woman on American soil Prompted a heated national discussion regarding how to accommodate the Chinese living among Americans. A two tiered paradigm that emerged from this dialogue disparaged Chinese culture while extending paternalistic care to Moy, pushing her toward acculturation, which was to be realized in a symbolic way after her disappearance from the exhibition stage. And that is the paternalism. That's just yeah. so apparent in her story. is is so gross, and like to also think that she was young, like she was actually very young at the time. Mm-hmm. As a, as a layer to that, and that that eventually did turn into hostility, and specifically anti Chinese sentiment and action, um, of course. But it's. Kind of important to layer that and what was happening in the U.S. at the time too, which was obviously many things. Like many things are happening at once in the 1830s, but some of the things were like Andrew Jackson was president, the Indian Removal Act became law in 1830, so just a few years before Afong Moy got to the U.S. And of course, millions of people were enslaved in the United Mm -hmm. States. Right. So there was an idealistic view of China. At the time, the Opium War still hadn't started taking place yet. That would start happening soon, but there was this view of China that was influenced by the goods and by the letters of people who had been there. Um, so it was very, a very narrow view of what China and Chinese people were. If you can even, you can't even really group that into a whole thing. So, mm-hmm. but that's, that was. It was a very limited view. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really unclear exactly how many people went to see Afon Moy, but it was in the thousands. Some people did record their experiences with her, and most of them were of the middle and the upper middle classes. Mm-hmm. After she got to the U.S., there were some really odd stories that popped up about her in the newspapers. There was one that she had never seen a left-handed person before. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Very specific. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, There was ones that were saying she disappeared um, or she left or something like that. But when her exhibition finally opened, people came to ogle her and her bound feet. And according to newspapers, kind of in those early times, she didn't really like it when men tried to get a closer look at her feet, but wasn't as opposed to it when women would try to get a closer look at her feet. Um, Atung was the name of her interpreter, and he would help her communicate with visitors and also make sure that she would get out of her seat to walk around across the room for people from time to time. And there were plenty of people in New York in the beginning who did go to see her, but some did object to the way she was displayed as exploitation. Some people objected to the fact that her feet were bound, saying, oh my gosh, it's a disgrace that she was being, you know, harmed by her feet being bound. Um, and just generally, I guess, being unclear about, like, the custom of fo- foot binding itself um, and working through their feelings and thoughts on that <laughs> after finally seeing it in person. Mm-hmm.
0: We have a little bit more for you, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Let's get back
1: into it. Yeah, so after her time in New York, she went on tour to other places across the US. For instance, she went to New Haven. She went to New Orleans. She went to Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, and she even ended up in Cuba. And she would sing songs in Chinese, and she was learning English all the while. And she, she even met with Andrew Jackson in the White House, and it's not quite clear exactly what the reason for that was, but um, she did. And Captain O'Bear and the Carnes did profit from her ticket sales But they made more in the long run from the sales of the Chinese goods, like the ones that were on display in the rooms that she was in. So things like vases, mirrors, lamps, chairs, all of the sort of decorative objects and furniture were things that they were able to sell because of her exhibitions. Yeah, so of course, the whole foot binding thing was the thing that was an anomaly or like so fascinating to so many people who visited her and got really um, invasive at times with people wanting to her to uncover her feet and measure her feet. And there were physicians actually in Philly who examined them. They begged to examine them and they got to. She consented and they took measurements and they published those measurements in the newspaper. And later, I think it was in Charleston, when she uncovered her feet again and this time for the ticketed public to see. So the story goes on and on like that of her in all these cities, in these exhibitions, acting as a performer, introducing real live in the flesh Chinese culture and (laughs) Chinese personhood to people. And those exhibitions created U.S. interest in Chinese culture and society, which there already was before, but it kind of hyped that up in addition to selling the goods. And... She didn't really have a home, though, so she was just traveling all the time to all these different shows, and she really depended a lot on her managers. And everything wasn't so sweet with the Carnes, though. Like, everything wasn't always good with their business. Um, They fell on hard times. When the Panic of 1837 hit, um, which was a kind of financial crisis that kind of led to a depression, Um, so they were bringing in so many goods but didn't necessarily have the audience for the consumers to be able to pick that stuff up. And then all this other stuff in the, in the U.S. economics was happening at the same time that didn't bode well for the business. And Afong Moy around that time, 1838, was supposedly abandoned um, and lived in poor conditions in New Jersey. And she spent several years there, according to documents. But interests in goods, Chinese goods, did resurface later in the late 1840s. And In 1848, she and Tom Thumb shared an exhibition space under P.T. Barnum, whose history is like a whole other thing um, Mm -hmm. that is a lot of displaying of, like, it's super controversial history. But she fell out of favor with Barnum after a while as well. And Moy was in the U.S. until around 1850, as far as we know, like, that's not the official date saying like, oh, she left after that. But at that point, records started of her disappeared. Um, And that's kind of where her story in letters ends, like where her story in writing ends, as far as we know. And that was also around the time things were changing a lot in the U.S. I mean, during her time here that we do know about, we know things were changing. So the mass immigration of Chinese people to the U.S. began in the late 1840s, early 1850s views of chinese people were changing so americans were increasingly deriding her clothing and her customs and chinese clothing and customs in general and her religious beliefs and chinese religious beliefs were being criticized by moral reformers and other christians in the us and the opium wars like i mentioned earlier were starting up and trade with china like chinese us relations and Chinese goods. All of that was changing at the time, and it was a, a buildup to kind of. I mean, so much stuff was happening at this at the time, but there was also kind of things that happened later around the 1880s when the Chinese Exclusion Act was introduced, and very specific anti-Chinese legislation um, and actions were being taken on in federal and local scales. So it kind of just feels like this bubble in time um, Afong Moe's story does where she was there to see that transition. It was also part of that transition of, wow, this mystical place that China was and then, wow, this place that maybe isn't so great in our eyes that we thought before, you know, we feel a certain way about it now Um, and all -hmm. this nativism creeping in, all this, you know, racism and and those kind of sentiments creeping in. So yeah, it just feels like, I really wish I knew a lot more about her story and like what mm-hmm. happened to her after, mm-hmm. after 1850.
0: Yeah, yeah um, and it is, looking back at what we do have, it is such a, it's strange looking at ads with her in them. And um, I would recommend to anyone who's interested in learning more because it is a very interesting story. Um, looking into that. And uh, yeah, it is just such a specific time. And and to read some of it, it's so kind of pro-American and saying, look, compared to this, how much better, how much more superior we are. Um, Especially towards the end, as you say,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: when attitudes shifted. But yeah, I wish we knew more about her too. And I know there's a lot of uh, interest because isn't there a movie now, there's a book. Book, there's a her. play
1: about yeah, the her. Play. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, and I I didn't see the play itself, but what I read about the play was that it was kind of attempting to be from Afong Moy's perspective, which is a lot that we haven't gotten through documentation since it was from right. other people's perspectives. And obviously, that was that's something that I would love to know more about too. Like, what did Afong Moy herself yeah. think about? And even in the the phrasing that people would give from the interpreter at Tongue, I was like, is this really what she said? Or is this right. what you wanted to tell people that she said?
2: Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, no, I, I would love so
0: much to know the motivations for her, even though it was her father was involved in that decision. But just how she felt and thought and when she was making this journey and then when she arrived.
2: There was mm-hmm. one report I read, because it, it was back and forth, that, that it was possible that she left to send money to the family, to her, to her father or something like that. But I don't know how any of this is true. I think that was just one report out of, you know, the majority was saying that it was a father that pretty much said she could go rather than the other way around. But I just wondered if that was possibility as well. Because, it's yeah, a story like this where you don't have a lot of understanding and because she does disappear, which kind of seems like the theme for this time frame... <laughs> Yeah. For many of historical ca- like figures, um, that you kind of wonder what did happen, and and for me, I'm like, was it tragic? Was she able to get out of it? What
1: happened? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would I would love to know her thoughts on the performance. Like, yeah, what was she really interested in? Like, did she continue? I know she went on to Barnum, but after that, did she still continue to perform? Did she mm-hmm. enjoy it as a livelihood, right. or was it just something that she had to do out of necessities? Like you said to send money back to her family or yeah what was her agency in her own words as well so so many questions right Yeah. so many
0: questions <laughs> mysteries of history as they say <laughs> okay I've never heard that but yeah that makes sense I say that all the time maybe it's just me
2: <laughs> maybe it's yourism But yeah, Yeah. it's it's almost tragic to see because she was put on a display, but at the same time, like, I saw one report saying, again, this is just probably an assumption, again, a bigger stereotype of her being a, quote, lotus blossom on one hand Uh, in her, like, uh, you know, mannerism, but then also the perpetuating, mm -hmm. but she was fierce tiger as well, oh, like those wow, two yeah. stereotypes came into play mm, uh-huh. at the same time. I'm like, how are you both? How is she both? <laughs> like it's right. that. But why was yeah. that the descriptor for her? And that was like the perpetuating of the continued stereotype of Asian yeah. women in general.
0: Yeah. yeah, and we've talked about like um as Western countries were getting these depictions of um Asian women, Chinese women, uh, for the first time, and fetishizing and exoticizing that and things you get like Madama butterflies happening, that kind of whole Asian doll stereotype which we talked about. And then I was fascinated with this. I learned, this is, I mean, I haven't dug too deep into this, but I learned that that's why uh, tea is sort of viewed as feminine (laughs) and coffee is more masculine because we associated tea with China, with Asia. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah. And um, just things like that where you... It really shows wow. how big these impacts, these stereotypes have. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He T- did figure a lot into the story of the stuff that the Carnes were importing mm-hmm. and was accessible. Like a lot of cheaper teas that were coming from China were accessible to a lot of people in the U.S. at the time. Um, yeah. It's so layered and so, yeah. so many stories right. within a story. Right. Yes. And she is kind of
2: a mystery on her own because you don't really hear from her or any perspective from her in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, (sighs) Mystery.
0: But (laughs) um, the story is fascinating. And I am glad you, once again, you brought something to my attention that I had never heard about before. I have never heard of her either. I love it. Yes. Yes, So thank you, as
1: always, Eves. Uh, Can't wait to do it again. Uh, where can the listeners find you? You can find me online at Eve Shefko. I'm Eve Shefko on Twitter. I am at Not Apologizing on Instagram. You can also listen to the podcast This Day in History Class, which is a daily uh, podcast about things that happen in history and birthdays in history. And you can also hear me on Unpopular. Yeah. And you should do go check all of that out,
0: listeners. Um, and in the meantime, if you'd like to email us, you can. Um, our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thank you. Thanks to you for listening. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.